It's good to see all of you here today. Uh, if you noticed, the Sunday school kids already made a, a quiet exodus uh, out of the sanctuary down to the third floor. Uh, so if you're here today and you have your kids with you and are wondering what's going on, you can go ahead and dismiss them if you wish. They're going to be meeting on the third floor. Uh, there's at least three classrooms that they're going to meet in, depending on their age group. Uh, but they're going to worship together, have Sunday school together, and then we'll see them again on the, on the fifth floor. All right, it's so good to see all of you uh, again. I already mentioned this at our Thanksgiving celebration because I was away in America for a little while, but it's, it's so good to be back and so good to see your faces again. Oscar, it's been a while. It's good to see you again, Oscar. Uh, Darius and Lana, I don't think I saw you last week, so it's good to see you again uh, finally uh, back from my trip. So anyway, it's good to be here. It's good to see all of you, and it's good to get back into this series. Do you remember where we were before, where I left off the book of Hebrews? Thank you. Thank you, Henry. The book of Hebrews. So if you will, turn to that book with me. I'll be reading today from chapter 11. As you may have seen, read on the group chat that we have as a church, I mentioned to you that chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews, it's been famously nicknamed the Hall of Faith, much like the Hall of Fame. And we get to remember people who did great things, maybe in sports. But in this case, it's the Hall of, of Faith. Great men and women in scriptures who had great faith. And we're going to see them. And, and actually, in, in chapter 11, as we are walking through this Hall of Faith, when we get to chapter 12, we actually walk into the stadium where we are going to run the race. Now it's our turn to demonstrate the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. But we'll get to that when the time comes, at least for now. Go ahead and turn to chapter 11. And while I am having you open your Bibles, let me just say, this coming Thursday, the Kotalama Ministry, for those of you that have been a part of that for quite some time, and thank you so much for all of you that take part in that, this Thursday, they're going to have their Christmas celebration. In fact, uh, Boris and Tanya worked with them this last week because the kids want to put on a special music performance for their church in Kotalama. So we were happy to hear about that, and we were happy that Tanya was able to, in one night, I think, get them together to, to practice what they're going to be performing. And it is this coming Thursday, right, Tanya? So any of you that have already been a part of the Kotalama ministry... If you can be there this Thursday to celebrate Christmas with them, we have gifts for them to take, uh, all the children, and also a family in our church donated money, and we are going to give them some of the best gifts a person can receive, and that is Bibles in Indonesian, Alkitab. And so because of an offering generously donated uh, from one of our families, we were able to buy so far 20 of these Bibles to give to the to the kids uh, in the Kotalama ministry, and we're actually hoping to get, I think, 10 more. I think um, Tanya would like to have 30 or so because we want to have a little bit extra just in case. Right now we have 20, and we'll be looking to get uh, some more if God should lay it on anybody's heart to donate an offering toward Bibles. The Bibles that we got, the medium size, were about 80,000 each, and then the small version was 70,000 rupiah each. If you feel so moved, by God, to donate toward that, we will purchase those Bibles today or tomorrow, and we will have 30 ready to go to give out to children who don't have an Alkitab right now. Uh, so praise God. Let's get them the word in their hands. Amen. 
All right, so remember that for Thursday evening if you would like to join at the Kota Lama Ministry, uh, the Christmas celebration. With that, let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. So thankful that we can actually have a Bible in our hands as well. And as I read, can I ask for you to stand with me? I'm going to read chapter 17 to, I'm sorry, verse 17 to verse 22. We're going to be talking about Abraham's family. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today's sermon is entitled, Generations of Faith. Because when we read these verses here, and when you read the, the account from Scripture, which comes from Genesis, uh, what we just read is from about Genesis chapter 22 all the way until the end of Genesis, talking about the, the uh, family of Abraham. And so when we read about what Hebrew says, and when you read the true accounts from Scripture, it seems as though the faith that Abraham had, which we'll talk about today, it seems as though that that faith, was sort of passed down from one generation to the next generation and on down to the next generations to come. And so today's sermon is called Generations of Faith, and I hope today you will be encouraged, especially you parents that are here today, that you will be encouraged to do as Abraham did. And that was to not only uh, exemplify faith in his life, but to show his children what true faith is all about and to sort of pass down this heritage of faith throughout the coming generations, not only from our families, but the coming generations that will come from this church right here. We pray that faith will characterize every generation from this church. Amen? If you'll remember from our Hebrew studies, one of the major themes of Hebrews is our life, our walk with Jesus Christ, it is by faith and not by sight. And the problem that people had when Hebrews was written, you had many Jewish people who were converting to Christianity. They believed in Jesus Christ and left everything to follow Christ. But you also still had their, the Jewish people, their families and their friends who did not convert to Christianity. They still were involved in their religion of Judaism and according to them, they would say to these new converts, but wait a minute, what are you running after? This Jesus, you can't see him, you can't touch him. I mean, what is that? Look at us, we still have the temple. We still have the altar, the sacrifices. We still have the priests and the incense. We can see it, we can hear it, we can smell it, we can touch it. Come back to Judaism. And so... All of Hebrews is teaching these new Christians, don't go back. 
There's nothing left for you in Judaism. You must move on by faith and follow Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 11, the writer begins to list off many people from the Old Testament, even back in Genesis, starting with Abel. And he mentions all these great men and women in Scripture. And they were great not because they were smart necessarily, because they were builders, because they were great world influencers. They were great because they had faith in God. But what we also learn about faith is that once we confess, once we say with our mouth, I have faith in Jesus, you can be sure God is going to test that faith. And he does it for reasons. We talked about a couple of weeks ago what faith means. Some say it's believing. And I say, yes, it is that. Some say, well, it's more than believing, it's trusting. And yes, amen, it's also trusting. But even more than just believing, more than trusting, faith is walking. Faith is actually living out the faith or the, the belief and the trust that I claim to have. Right now, you all just proved that you truly have faith in the chair that you are sitting in. You just proved it for us. You came in, you saw that chair, and without even thinking about it, you believed that that chair could hold you up. And then you practiced real faith. You sat down on that chair. You proved that you truly do trust and have faith in that chair that you're sitting in. Same principle in the Christian life. It's not just what we say. Many people can say, I believe in Jesus. But once they do, they can be sure. You can be sure. God will test that faith. Someone once said that a faith, a faith that is not tested cannot be trusted. And God doesn't test our faith because he's not sure if it's real or not. He, he doesn't know. He can't quite see in your heart. You hear me? He heard you say that you trust in him, but he's just not quite sure. So here's a test. And if you pass it, then God says, okay, now I... Okay, now I get it. I get it. You were, you were right. You, you do believe in me. God doesn't test us for his own benefit. I think God does it for our benefit. He tests our faith so that we know, we know for sure, do I truly have faith or not? Otherwise, we may just be deceiving ourselves all throughout life. And God won't have that. So God will test that faith so that we know that we speak the truth when we say we have it. And God will also test that faith because in the testing, in the suffering, in the fire of that testing, God knows how to purify your faith and to take it from here and grow it exponentially. And so we welcome the tests of God because they are for our own good. Anyway, this past Friday night, I got together with our youth as we normally do on Friday nights for our uh, home connect group. And we got into the discussion and some kids were asking the question, why is it that so many famous people, especially famous young people, who maybe they were an actor or an actress and then all of a sudden they became some music pop star. All of a sudden the, the, the lights are shining on them, they're on stage and thousands and thousands or perhaps millions of people follow them. Why is it that so many of these famous people, when you first hear about them, 
A lot of them talk about their faith in Jesus and their dedication and devotion to Jesus. But as soon as that spotlight shines brighter and brighter, they become someone completely different. They start to speak and do things that are actually vulgar. Their attitude, their actions, and even the words that they are singing are in complete dishonor of Jesus, the same one they claim to love and be devoted to. And so the question was from our youth, how does that happen? Why does that happen? I don't know. But maybe it's because they proclaimed to have something. And once they were put into the test, it only showed it was never there in the first place. The Bible says that there will be some who sort of receive the gospel, but yet weeds grow. And the cares and concerns and the worries of this world become so much that it just sort of chokes out the word of God. It chokes out any faith. And I think there are a lot of young people who fall into the same trap. Today, let's look at the life of Abraham. We're going to see three things today. We're going to split this, these verses up into three parts. We're going to see, number one, Abraham's belief, because that's where it all begins today. Abraham's belief. Number two, we are going to see Isaac's and Jacob's blessings. And then number three, we'll see Joseph's bones. Belief, blessings, and bones. And by this, we are going to see the generations of faith, this heritage of faith in Abraham's family. So let's begin. Number one, it all begins with Abraham's belief. Abraham's belief. And if you look at uh, chapter 11, we're going to first begin again with verse 17 and verse 18. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, we already read those words earlier. In fact, in verse 8 of the same chapter, it said, by faith, Abraham obeyed. This is how Abraham proved that he actually did have faith in God. The Bible says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Did Abraham have faith? Yes. How do you know? Because he obeyed God. Why did he obey God? Because he had faith. And it's no different in these verses here. It says that by faith, when he was tested, when God put him through yet another test, Abraham proved once again that there was true faith alive in his heart. And he walked in faith and in obedience toward the Lord. It says he was tested. And this is going to be in Genesis chapter 22. And if you remember the story, Abraham is called by God to leave his country, leave his father, leave his family, and go to a country he had never been to before, the land of Canaan. And so Abraham obeyed. And he took his wife. They had no children. They couldn't have children. And they were already beyond the age of having children. He took his wife, his nephew, his family, all their livestock, all their possessions, and he moved into a place he had never been to before, the land of Canaan. And as time went by, God had given Abraham a promise that he and his wife Sarah, although they had no children, and they were beyond the age of having children, it was impossible for them physically to have children. Nevertheless, God told Abraham that you and Sarah will have a son. 
And through that son, I will begin to build you a multitude of people, a great nation, a blessed nation, a nation with their own land. And as time goes by, it will actually be a spiritual nation as well because it includes us here today. And so Abraham had these promises. And Abraham had some ups and some downs in his walk with the Lord. He had some great moments and he had some not so great moments with the Lord. He had some great victories of faith and he had some failings of faith as well. Finally, over many years, again when they were beyond the age of having children, and the Bible says that Abraham was as good as dead as far as having children, God gave them a son named Isaac. And God said through Isaac, this is your son now, through Isaac, I will make you into a great nation and you will be blessed and you will have your own land right here in the land of Canaan. And then you come to Genesis 22, and like out of nowhere, it says, now after these things, God said to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love, and offer him up to me as a burnt offering. In other words, kill him sacrifice him, and burn him as a burnt offering to me. Wow. Talk about a test. And the Bible says here in very simple words, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, what did he do? And how long did it take him to think about what to do? By faith, he was tested, and he offered up Isaac. No in-between arguments, no in-between questions, not, no in-between, uh, God, are you sure you know what you're talking about? No. Abraham, offer up your boy to me as a sacrifice. And Abraham went on to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And he had every intention on doing that. But you know the story, right? He lays Isaac on that altar. He prepares the knife. And just before, he kills his son. And of course, God never intended on this actually happening. He was just testing his heart. And just then, he tells Abraham to stop. Because now it is known that faith is alive and well in Abraham. And instead of Isaac dying, a ram was sacrificed instead. And so the Bible says, by faith, Abraham, who said he believed in God, when he was tested... He proved that he actually believed because he actually offered up his son, Isaac. Here is a man that didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. People often say, why don't you practice what you preach? Look at Abraham. He did it every day. He practiced what he preached. And so the Bible says, yes, Isaac, this one, the one that God promised through Isaac, I will make you into a great nation. And now God says, okay, take Isaac and kill him. Seems to make no sense at all. So what was going through Abraham's mind, I wonder? Do you wonder that? It says in the next verse, Abraham offered up Isaac, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So in other words, Abraham did this 
Because he came to a conclusion in his mind. He concluded something, and I love that word. Because that word concluded, or coming to that conclusion, it's actually an accounting word. Anybody here an accountant for a company? Any of you dream to be an accountant one day? Nobody wants to be an accountant. Who wants to be an accountant and deal with numbers all day? Anyway, if that's you, accounting. This conclusion, concluding, is an accounting term. It literally means to calculate, to add up, to reckon, to take all the facts, add them up, and come to a conclusion. It's what accountants do when they add up the deposit to come up with the conclusion, here is the balance of the account. The same exact term, technical term for this word. And what I love about this is that it means you add up the facts. Not your opinions, not what you think things should be, not your feelings about something. Add up the facts. And then you will come to this conclusion. I used to work for a bank before I came here. When I first worked for the bank behind the, the teller line, it was a common thing at least once a month a customer would come in, and, and in America, we didn't have these digital computers like you have here where you, you, you put in a, a, what, a passbook, and the, it will, I don't know what it is. The computer puts down all your transactions for you and all your balances for you. You don't have to do anything. In America, we didn't have that. We did it by hand. Every transaction, you write it down, and you put in the deposits, and you do your own adding, and you come up with your own conclusions. And I can't tell you, it must have been at least once a month, a customer would come in and say, um, something's wrong with my balance. My checkbook doesn't balance. Can you fix it for me? And I actually learned, you know, our policy was, okay, we can do that. We've got to fill out the information. You have to explain to us what exactly the problem is. We've got to send it to our back office. And then in two weeks' time, we'll give you an answer. I didn't want to do that. And I thought, I'll do it. I, in fact, I liked doing it. It was like a puzzle for me. I would go page after page, looking at what these people are purchasing, but I would go page after page, adding up all these numbers and going through it all, and sure enough, I would find the problem. And I would come to the correct balance, solve the problem. Do you know what the problem was every single time? They didn't include all the facts. Some facts were simply missing. And when facts, no matter how small they may have been, when facts were missing, the end balance was completely off. It was untrue. What did Abraham do then? What was his conclusion? What, what was the process? Abraham added up all the facts. He added up how God has always been faithful to me. He added up that God has provided for me every step of the way. God, you have done impossible things already in my life. You gave me a son when I, there's no way I could have a son, yet you did that for me, God. You're a miracle working, God. And not only that, when I have made mistakes, God, you've been there for me, merciful, forgiving, and gracious to me. I am so loved by you. In fact, you call me your friend. And when I add up all these facts, then I know that if you allow me to kill my son, then you know what? You're going to raise him from the dead. You're going to do that. Why? 
because you gave me a promise, God, and you keep your promises. You don't lie. You said through Isaac, I would have a nation of people. So if you allow me to actually kill my son, that makes no sense. So there will be a resurrection. And Abraham thought that. And he probably said those exact words when as far as we know from Scripture, nobody ever saw someone raised from the dead. Never happened. We have no historical account from Scriptures that anybody had ever been raised from the dead. And yet Abraham believed that if God would actually allow him to kill his son, God was going to raise that boy back to life again. Why? Because God made a promise. And I've added up the facts and I've concluded God always keeps his promises and he cannot lie and he is faithful. Oh, how we would do well to count up the facts about God. The next time you are afraid to obey something the Lord has told you to do, the next time you question, does God love me? The next time you feel like God won't forgive you for something you've done, the next time you just don't feel as though you're capable of doing what the Lord has called you to do, count up the facts. Add them up one by one and you'll find out the focus is no longer about you anymore. It's about who he is and all that he has done for me. And you will conclude, Lord, I don't know how, I don't know why, but I'm going to follow you and I'm going to obey and you will work in my life. Let's count the facts. And what exactly did Abraham conclude? That he was able to raise Isaac from the dead. That is awesome. How did Abraham come to that conclusion? You know, maybe it was when he said to himself, you know what? I was also dead as far as, I was as good as dead. I couldn't have any children. I was impotent. I was as good as dead. Yet God took death and he brought life because I had a son named Isaac. So God, you sort of brought me back to life. Surely you can bring my boy back to life as well. And that's what he concluded. That is what Abraham believed because God made a promise and God does not lie. When do you suppose Abraham came to that conclusion? In fact, when you read the story from Genesis 22, we have no mention of Sarah. I wonder on that morning that Abraham packed up Isaac to go to that mountain called Moriah to do this sacrifice. Did Sarah know where they were going? Did Abraham tell his wife what he was about to do? I don't know. There's no mention of her. When did Abraham decide, if I do this, God will raise my boy up? Was it somewhere on the way to Mount Moriah? Was it while they were climbing up the mountain? Was it when he built the altar or bound his son? Was it when he took the knife in his hand that he knew, God, you can raise him up? When? You know, I believe Abraham, even before that early morning when he set out on that journey, even before that moment, he already settled it in his heart. God, okay, I'm going to do this. And I know if you allow my boy to be killed, there will be a resurrection. I believe he would believe that from the very beginning. 
In fact, there's a hint in the story in Genesis 22 that Abraham already believed that God would raise him up. Do you know what it is? It's when he's with Isaac. Isaac is carrying some stuff. Abraham's carrying stuff. And there were also two servants, two men that Abraham brought with them to carry some supplies and to come with them with donkeys. But when they came to Mount Moriah, Abraham looked at his servants and he commanded them to wait here while the boy and I go up to the mountain. Watch what he says. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad, my son, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. You see that? In Abraham's mind, we are going up the mountain, and I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen up there. I know it's very likely that my son will die. I don't know exactly all that's going to happen, but I know we are both going up that mountain, and we are both coming back again. Abraham knew before he scaled the cliffs of that mountain that his boy would live and the two of them would come back down. Wow. That is faith. Imagine the lessons in faith Isaac learned from his father Abraham. Think of the wonderful example that Abraham was as a father for Isaac. A wonderful example of faithful obedience to God. Talk about a legacy to leave to a child. Dads and moms. Teachers and leaders. Especially those of you that have children in your family that you teach, that you're with day in or day out. Maybe there are some other people in your family. You have a responsibility to not only say you have faith, but let those kids see your faith. Let them see your faithful obedience to God. Let this be something you can pass along to the next generation. As Abraham did for Isaac, Isaac would grow up and probably tell the story many, many times. He would say, listen, I was on that altar. My dad took that knife and he was lit. I mean, he was about to do it. And suddenly the word of the Lord came out. And they would say, Isaac, oh my goodness, what were you thinking? And maybe he was just saying, I, what could I do? What could I think? But Lord, I just I got to trust in you. I have to trust in you, Lord, that you know what you're doing. Abraham was an example for his son. And here now begins a heritage of faith. Next we see, number two, Isaac's and Jacob's blessings. Right there. Isaac's and Jacob's blessings. Look now at verse 20 and 21. It says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. Now just in case you're not aware of this, there's a few names here in this verse. Remember, Abraham is the father. Abraham and Sarah. They have a son named Isaac. It was their only son, Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, and the two of them had the sons Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob had 12 sons. 
who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of the youngest sons that he had, second to last, was this Joseph that we see in this verse as well. But let's look at how both Isaac and Jacob blessed their children and blessed their grandchildren. Do you know that in the Bible we find parents, even grandparents, blessing children and grandchildren? We even find Jesus himself blessing little children. And you know, blessing was something very prominent in the scriptures. It was an important thing. The patriarchal blessing was a very important thing. That moment when a father would bless his children. And I think today, maybe just because of our lifestyle or our society or culture, we've sort of gotten away from this idea of blessing the children. But I think it would be wise for us, very wise, to follow the example of the biblical blessing of the next generation. When you look at how people were blessing children or blessing the next generation, you'll find in the biblical blessing, there were three common elements when children were blessed. And again, we would be wise to pay attention to these. Number one, when somebody was being blessed, they always showed tender affection. There was always involved a touch. In other words, like for Jacob, when he blessed the sons of Joseph, he put his hands on the boys' heads and he blessed them. And sometimes they would put their hands on the, the children's heads, sometimes maybe on their shoulders. Other times they would bless them while embracing them in their arms. They would give them a kiss on the neck or the cheek. And in that sign of great affection and love, in that tender touch, they would bless their children. Do you know what's important for us parents? To have a touch. To teach our children a proper meaningful, tender touch. For me, it's important as a father, and I want to make sure that my daughters know what it's like to be touched properly, lovingly, tenderly by their father. You know, a study was done at UCLA, California, United States, some years ago. A study was done where 400 women were brought together for a survey. 400 women each woman had at least four children out of wedlock. And not only four children out of wedlock, but multiple men who fathered those children. But of course, these women raised these children by themselves. And so in this survey, 400 women who had at least four children each out of wedlock, multiple fathers, they were asked many questions, and the professor from UCLA found a common denominator among all of these women. And it had nothing to do with their income level, had nothing to do with their race, had nothing to do with their social category, and it had nothing to do with their religion or lack of religion. The common denominator among all these women was that they all said they had never, ever experienced a loving touch from their father nor grandfather. 
They didn't know what it was like for a father to come and put his arm around them, to hold them, to hug them, to give them a kiss goodnight, to walk hand in hand with the daughter. They didn't know what that was like. And so as they got older, they desired a touch. But by then, they were confused on what that touch should be. And they found themselves with men who cared nothing about them, who abused them, who were selfish with them, touched them in the wrong way, and they ended up in the position that they were in. Gentlemen, fathers, it's important for our children to know what a proper, tender, loving touch truly is. Amen? You read about biblical blessings. It always involved, number one, a tender sign of affection, a touch. Number two, present affirmation. When they spoke to their children, they spoke to them about the things that they noticed about them. Sometimes, for example, when, when Jacob was blessing, he would say that one of his sons had the, the courage and the boldness and the strength like a lion. Another son, he said that you're, you're going to be so fruitful in life. You're going to be like a vine, overgrowing the walls, and there will be fruit from your life that people will take from. They saw something in their children, and they made sure their children knew what they saw in them. It's important for our kids to have words of affirmation, to hear a parent say, you know what? You studied for that test. And regardless of the result, I'm proud of the way you studied. I'm proud of the way you are dedicated to your schoolwork. Or, do you know when that person said that thing to you, like your sister said to you, and you didn't fly off the handle, you didn't say something mean back to them, I'm proud of you. You showed patience in that. Patience like I don't know if I would have at that moment, but you did. Words of affirmation. It's important for us parents to speak those kinds of words to our children. And you know what? I hope you are. Because in this church right here, I've gotten to talk to your children because I handle the, the youth group. And on Friday nights or any time I get, in fact, I know, some of your kids probably tell you I bother them. And I, I know, like, I, I'm looking at Rachel right now and James and Steffi, and they probably think, Mom... Pastor Heath, he's always up in our business. He's always asking what we're doing, what's going on in school. And, but I only do it, Nanik, because I, I see something in them. I see intelligence in at least two of them. No, I'm just kidding. But I, but I love watching them grow. I love the things that they're doing, and I think they're such bright, talented kids. And I want to know because I'm just curious what's going on in your life. I look over here and Josephine, Kasia, and the other girls that are in our group, they have such talent. There are such gifts in them. And when we all get together, my daughters included, when we all get together to worship the Lord together, there's just such a wonderful, warm relationship. When a new kid comes to youth, that new kid doesn't feel like a stranger. It is so quick for our kids to welcome them in to the communion to the community of young people. And I'm so proud of all your kids. Luca, Oscar. I'm telling you, I really wonder if some of you kids go home and say to your parents that Pastor Heath is just way too involved with you. 
but I only do it because, man, David, the things I see in you, I'm just so proud. And I want to tell you what I see happening in your life. Parents, we need to do this for our children. They need to know what we see in them and give them these words of affirmation. And number two, or I'm sorry, number three, future direction. In other words, wow, uh, you know, James, you're so good with, I'm just making something up, you're so good with, with how you work with, with, with machines and, and, and robotics, and you're good with your hands, and you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if one day God is going to call you to be a, a machinist, a, a, a mechanic, maybe even a mechanical engineer, you have that in you. Or someone else, you, you've got such an adventurous spirit in you. You have such courage, you're not afraid. I, I wouldn't be surprised to find out one day that God has called you to be a missionary. I just, I, I can imagine that happening. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if God called you to be a doctor. You know, just giving them future direction. Not only this is what I see in you, but wow, imagine. Imagine if you cultivate these talents. Imagine what you could do in the future. I think there are so many young people, and maybe today they know what they're good at, but they have no sense of direction about future. And they sort of just wander, wander aimlessly, not knowing what to do in the future. We need to help them as parents teachers, ministers, leaders, help them gain some sort of direction in their life. And you know what? Speaking of this, did you notice that in that verse that talked about uh, Jacob and Esau being blessed, and then also it was Joseph's sons? Do you know that in the story of how these young boys were blessed, Jacob and Esau were blessed. Well, Esau was the oldest of the two. And normally, according to culture and tradition, the oldest boy would be the, the biggest inheritor, the, 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 the greatest blessed of all the rest of the kids. And the same thing with Joseph's two boys. The older boy should have received, according to culture and tradition, the greater blessing. Yet, when these boys were blessed, God flipped that tradition up on its head. And God proved, I am not bound by your traditions. I'm not bound by your cultures. I will bless those who I will bless. And so Jacob, the younger of the two, was the one greatly blessed. And then it was the younger son of Joseph that received the greater blessing. And I think today, sometimes we are also bound in traditions and in culture. When I was growing up, I was the youngest son in a family of four kids. And not just the youngest, but I'm pretty far the youngest. My oldest brother, I'm not too far, my oldest brother's nine years, almost ten years older than me, but it just seemed like my three siblings are all close in age. They grew up together, went to the same school together, had the same friends together, and then there was this little Heath, you know, running behind them. And that's how people always looked at me. It was, wow, look at your sons, pastor, look at your daughter. Oh, and that... that the little one. What, what's his name? Oh, yeah, yeah, he. And then it came time as we grew up, people would say, wow, Pastor Flanagan, I see that you're, 
Your kids, they're going to be involved in ministry one day. We, we just see, we have visions, we have dreams, and we just know that one day it's going to be your son Hugh and your son Brandon. They will carry on the work of the Lord. They will go into ministry. Your daughter too. She's got these talents. She's going to be in ministry one day. And I would hear that and say, well, what about me? Oh, little Heath, you're funny. That's the way it is for the youngest. And I w I've been told that the youngest child is always the follower, always the one who just waits for permission to do whatever. He waits for the siblings. He waits for the parents. He has no direction on his own. James, I'm right there with you. I know what it's like. But you know what? When I was a little boy, when I was 10 years old, I knew I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to minister to people. I wanted to tell people about Jesus and lead people to know him. And I said to God, I sort of gave him an idea. I said, Lord, I want to be one of those pastors that never have to preach. Because that's what I won't do. I can't do that. I'm too scared to do that kind of thing. So let's figure out a new ministry, God. You and me. I'll be the first. I'll be the first pastor ever who doesn't have to preach. Let me just be that, that silent pastor who just meets with people one-on-one. -on -one. I never knew that I could actually come to a level of standing in front of people and speaking. That was never in my heart. And then one day, when I was in high school, in 11th grade, in English, we had an assignment. I was in a group. I didn't do my work. I didn't do my part. And the girls in my group said to the teacher, kick Heath out because he's not helping, he's not doing his work, and he's hurting us. And so the teacher took me out of the group, and I had to do my own project all by myself. All the reading, all the research, all the planning, and the presentation itself. All me. And when my, when my dad found that out, he said, boy, come to church with me. I went to church with my dad on a Saturday. He was in his office all day studying. He made me sit in the secretary's office at her desk, and I had to read my own books. I had to write, and my father said to me, listen, you can do this. I know you don't have a team of people, but if you put your mind to this, give your best, you can do this. And I thought, all right. So I did the work on a Saturday afternoon. Monday morning, it was the day to give our presentations. All the groups went, and I went as well, all by myself. And when I gave my presentation and all was said and done, the next few days, we all got the results. Do you know who had the highest grade in the class? Little Heath. Little, funny Heath. The kid that just runs behind his siblings. And not only that, I'll never forget this. My teacher wrote a note on my paper. And she said, someday you should speak in public. And then I thought, you know what? Maybe I can. God, maybe I'll be one of those kinds of pastors who actually preaches. All that happened because a teacher took the time to write me a note. And she probably had no idea the fire she just put in my heart. But it came, and it's still burning today. It's important for us to speak to our children, to tell them the things that we see in them, and to help give them direction in life. And last, number three, 
Joseph's bones. Hebrews 11, verse 23, it says, By faith, I'm sorry, verse 22, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. You remember Joseph. He was the, one of the sons of Jacob. Joseph, one of the youngest children, he was hated by his brothers. He was abandoned by them. He was betrayed by them. He was sold as a slave into Egypt by them. He ended up being falsely accused in Egypt. He went to prison in Egypt. All the bad things were happening to him, except the Bible kept saying, yet the Lord was with him. And in the end of this story, it's, it says that Joseph eventually became the second in command of all the land of Egypt. Wow, incredible. And so the time comes, there's a famine, and because of Joseph's good thinking and planning, he not only saves all of Egypt, he saves his family in Canaan as well. And as time goes by, his family comes to him in Egypt, 70 people in all, and they live there with Joseph. But Joseph, before he died, he says to them, don't forget, God has blessed us until today, but this land we live in right now, Egypt, this is not our land. Don't forget, God made a promise. He promised our father Abraham. He promised our fathers Isaac and Jacob. And now we hold the same promise that we will be a mighty nation on the earth and we will have our own land. Don't forget, the Lord will come and take you out of Egypt and bring you to that promised land. In fact, when I die, I want you to remember my bones. And when you leave Egypt, take my bones with you. And so, Joseph's body became a memorial for the people of God. And every time they remembered that body, they remembered the Lord keeps His promises. And 400 years go by. 400 years. Israel was fruitful and they multiplied, but Egypt was not their home. And worst of all, they, were, they became slaves by a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and didn't care about a Joseph. And they were made slaves. And every day, under the oppression and sufferings of slavery, they saw that tomb where Joseph was buried those bones that were wrapped up inside that tomb. And every day they remembered, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. The faith of Joseph was passed down to generations and they remembered what he said. Generations went by and maybe that faith was growing more and more glimpse. But yet it remained. And the, even though Joseph was gone, the hope remained. Until one day, a man by the name of Moses enters into Egypt with a staff. And he says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the Lord says, let my people go. And as the story goes, eventually Israel was delivered out of Egypt. And eventually they went to that land that the Lord had promised. But Moses didn't forget what Joseph said. And in the story of Exodus, it says in chapter 13, and Moses took the bones 
of Joseph with him. And in the wilderness years, the 40 years, they carried those bones. The Lord is going to bring us home. You remember what Joseph said. And eventually, in the book of Joshua, when Israel finally went into the promised land, into Canaan, destroyed the, the armies that were coming against them, and now the tribes of Israel claimed the land, it then says, almost a footnote at the end of Joshua, by the way, the bones of Joseph which the children of Israel had brought out of Egypt, they buried in Shechem. Those bones were a sign of faith by Joseph. They were carried through the wilderness and buried in that promised land. By faith, he spoke of those bones. There was no longer a tomb filled with bones, but an empty tomb. And that empty tomb proclaimed, they are now free. They are delivered. They are no longer slaves. The tomb was empty. In conclusion, in fact, Pastor Stephen, could I have you come and the musicians that we have left here today? In conclusion, I speak to you parents, and not only to you parents, but those of you today, the older generation. I say older, and I include myself in the older generation as well. Parents, older generation, is your faith like Abraham's faith an example to your children? Is it an example to the younger generation? Parents, teachers, leaders, let us learn to bless our children. Bless them and teach them to put their faith in Jesus. Let's learn to love them and to show that love to them. Let's show our affections for them. Let's speak to them in words of affirmation. And let us help give them direction toward a life that will glorify the name of Jesus. And may the day come, praise God, that the next generation, they will live by faith. Amen? A faith that trusts and believes in the love and in the power of God. And we, like Joseph, we will have left them something to remember. Faith. Faith that God is good. Faith that God keeps His word and fulfills every promise. They are in Christ. Yes and amen. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together today. And as we sing a song that declares our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, let us also pray that this will be a song that the next generation will sing as well. Pastor Stephen, would you lead us in this song?
believe in you. Jesus, I belong to you. You're the reason that I live, the reason that I sing with all I am. I walk with you. You, wherever you go, through tears and joy, I'll trust in you, and I will live in all of your ways and your promises forever. I believe in you, Jesus. I belong to you. You're the reason that I live, the reason that I see. Jesus, I believe in you. I belong to you. You're the reason that I see, the reason that I see with all I am. Now let's sing, I will worship you. And as we do, let us speak not only from our own hearts, but let us by faith speak on behalf of our children on behalf of the next generation that they will also grow to sing i will worship you let us by faith sing this together by faith believing that our children and our grandchildren will also know the lord and worship him amen i will worship you God, we want to show you the faith that we claim. 
We want to show you the faith that we proclaim with our mouth. And so, Lord, we pray that not only will you work in us, that not only will you plant this faith in our hearts and bring it to fruit, but I pray, oh God, that when the storms come, when the fire is turned up, when the times of suffering comes, that we will remember, as Peter would say, as James would say, count it all joy, brothers, when the time of testing comes. Because testing will produce patience. Testing produces faith. Faith will become like pure gold in our life. Faith that is found to be glorified and honored and praised in the presence of Jesus. So Lord, when that testing comes, I pray, oh God, that we will know that you're not out to make us fall. You're not looking to burn us. You're looking to grow us. You're looking to purify our faith. So I pray, oh God, that we will walk by faith and through every test, we will prove that we are obedient people. We will prove that we walk in faith. And I pray, oh God, that the faith we have, by faith, it will be passed down to our children, our sons and our daughters. The children who met in Sunday school today, they will also have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the coming generation that we haven't seen yet, we haven't met them yet, but in a coming generation, they will also surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. That they will worship you as we do today. Hallelujah. Lord, I pray that Alpha Omega International, we will have an, a heritage of faith. Hallelujah. That faith will be passed down from one generation to the next. And I pray that will be true of all of our families that are here today. Thank you, God for blessing us. Help us by faith to bless our children for the glory of God. Thank you, Lord. If there is one thing said about our church, may it be that we are blessed people who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for your word today. Thank you for speaking to us today. Now help us this week to continue to meditate on it and to seek your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.